Welcome to a Black Movie Podcast, where we celebrate Black culture through its cinema by reviewing and discussing Black-led films from a range of different genres and time periods. My name is Andre, and today with me is... James. Ryan. And Lauren. And today we will be discussing Hoop Dreams. Hoop Dreams is a very, very critically acclaimed film from the 90s. It's a documentary following two young basketball players, Arthur Ag and William Gates. This movie has an interesting history behind it. Originally, it was supposed to be a PBS special about just kids playing at a playground in Chicago. And after filming and following some of the kids around, the film crew decided that this needs to be a much, much longer movie. And from there, they went through the process of trying to uh, raise money, shooting demo footage, and eventually we got to this three-hour movie. So yes, it's very long if you haven't seen it already, but I promise you it's worth it. It is worth the watch. Despite the movie's critical acclaim, it was an Oscar snub when it was el eligible in 1995, I believe, was the year that it was eligible for the Oscars. And I just want to go around just get people's initial thoughts. I mean, you've already gotten mine. Like, It's a very good movie in my opinion, but just kind of popcorn it out there. So what did everyone think of the movie? Uh, I'll start. I really liked this movie. I didn't know anything about it. Like, I, I'm pretty sure I'd heard of it, but I'd never seen it. And I didn't really know what to expect by going into it. It is long as hell, but it is really good. I thought the story was heartbreaking and um, made me want to, like, burn down our education system. But overall, I, th I thought it was, was very well done. It felt... Like the creators had care for the the family and really connected with them in a way that like sometimes documentary filmmakers um, don't really. Uh, what about you, Lauren? Say so, so. I I remember like hearing about this when it came out, and I've you know heard about it because it is one of it's regarded as one of the best documentaries ever made. But I never actually bothered to watch it before this, and so I will postpone that it's very long, but it's definitely worth watching. For me, it was sort of like an weird time capsule experience where everything you know watching it this this much further in what it be like 30 years on i hate to say that but it just sounds sort of weird but watching this is like a weird time capsule where everything has changed but nothing has changed and so like it was fascinating to watch but also infuriating not because the movie was bad there are some movies we've watched where i'm just so angry at how terrible the movie is and this was not like that but what happens in a lot of the movies and the way in particular that adults in the movies treat and react to and sort of use these kids just is absolutely infuriating. And the fact that it's all still kind of there just kind of makes it worse, right? The fact that I'm like, yeah, this isn't really a lot different now um, just sort of made it feel worse. But I, I did really enjoy it, um, although it was, a, it was a long watch. I had actually seen this um, when I was younger. Um, I had a. I grew up with uh, my cousin Henry, who um, very much had his own hoop dreams. Like he, he was the one who wanted to go to the NBA. You know, he knew that ev everything in his life was about basketball, and just constantly chasing those promises was something that you know I watched him go through. And so this coming out was watching it as a teenager. All of my focus was on well, you know, here's what they could have done to make it or, you know, hey, this reminds us a lot of the neighborhood or stuff that we've seen and dealt with. But watching it as an adult, um, 
just had me really sad and angry from a number of different directions. I thought the film was like really brilliant. It is the it is the most scope creep I've ever probably seen on film. Because um, like you go from thirty minutes to three hours, and like Zack Snyder wasn't involved, that's fantastic. But I do think that being able to show some of those uh, those conflict points, um, it really resonates right now um, in twenty twenty one. At the time we're recording this, the the U.S. Supreme Court has just ruled on um, some of the NCAA's amateurism uh, requirements and some of the things that they don't require that they don't allow universities and colleges to provide to athletes and hearing the amateurism argument about why you know an education is enough after watching these these boys grow up devoting every every bit of their lives their families devoting every bit of their lives their whole community is trying to prop them up for a chance at this and then to see them get to college and like have things work out the way they work out it, it very much just makes you you know, angry at the system and ready to burn it down, which I think mission accomplished. I also think that the movie did a really great job of just um, showing the, the different aspects of life growing up in the inner city, for lack of a better term, and the kinds of things that black kids struggle to, to get through, to try to use athletics as a way out of poverty. I think we're going to get to it later, but boy, I have some thoughts about the NCAA that I want to talk about when we get to the, a later point in this this podcast. Oh, yeah, for sure. We're definitely going to talk about it. But um, before we get into that, because I have a feeling that a lot of those themes surrounding uh, with the NCAA, um, with the community surrounding the kids, well, now men, uh, yeah, men, because I think they're both like in their 40s now, if I'm not mistaken. Both Arthur and uh, William uh, are in their 40s now at the time of recording. I might be wrong on that one. But, uh, you know, there's all these different themes of race and class and uh, economics. But I wanted to focus on the filmmaking itself early on here because I have a feeling that that's probably going to be the smallest part of our discussion. Because, because the cinematography and the editing in this movie is just immaculate. Like, it's probably one of the best edited uh, films I've ever seen. Yeah, I do believe that the actual Oscar they were nominated, eventually nominated for was editing, wasn't it? Uh, way because I they were snubbed for best documentary and that actually led to reformat of how documentary films are like actually considered for the Oscars. And I think they were nominated for editing but then didn't get it. Uh, yes, that is correct. Yeah. I mean, I, I really liked the editing of this documentary really well. Um, so this this documentary is done in the cinema verite style for the most part, which is like a a pure cinema style of documentary film where it's made very obvious that there's a camera and there's a filmmaker there, but they try to be as inconspicuous typically as possible. So to really just like let reality shine through, but they try not to hide the fact that they're there and they feel like the fact that there is a camera and there's a filmmaker there sort of leads credence to the fact they're not explicitly biasing what you're seeing on screen, right? They're presenting to you reality as, as it happened, so to speak. Oh, that was great. The downside for that, for me, is that that means there's typically very minimal equipment. It's usually just like a guy and a camera, and maybe there's a mic. Um, but there's no lights, and there's no other things that you might be used to seeing in either more polished documentaries with like higher level production or traditional movies. The downside of not having things like lights means that in a movie full of Black people, 
you're not always actually seeing them as well as you can on screen because it's just sometimes hard to light black people, especially in a dark room or on like a day where the sky is super blown out so that you can actually see the characters in front of you. So that's my only critique of like the actual production. The rest of it was really well done. And it was incredibly immersive the way it told the story, just through the editing and through the presentation of what's on screen. To Lauren's point about uh, black skin, I think what was particularly interesting too is that this movie, I feel... I think it was shot in the late 80s, early 90s. Mm -hmm. So they were using a film camera. And I think when the film was being restored uh, a few years ago, I think it was noted that it was all shot on 35 millimeter. Actually, no, not 35. I mean, way too big. I forget. It's It was like beta or something. Yep. It was uh, shot analog on beta SP videotape. I don't know where 35 uh, film came from. I think that might have just been one of the prints that they had for the for the final edit of the movie. Uh but yeah, no, it was shot on uh shot on film and film is pretty difficult to shoot on uh especially because a lot of the times you don't know what you actually shot until you've actually got that film developed. And so yeah, there were definitely scenes where things were a little dark, but the thing that impressed me about the cinematography was that they were able to get some of the shots that they were even able to get some of those shots that they had where um, some of the graduation shots like really impressed me. Uh, a lot of the basketball game shots were super impressive. There's a beautiful shot where like the lights, when the lights go out in the house because they can't pay for it and someone's carrying a lamp with a super long um, extension cord through like the long house down to the end and it just follows that single light. That was gorgeous. It's brilliant. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, it was one of those. Mo it was one of those moments that um, it was one of the few moments in the movie where everything felt a little bit inorganic. I don't know if anybody had else had those moments where it's just like, okay, it seems like they're they've set this up a little bit. Yeah, I had a couple of those yeah. a little bit later in the movie too, where I was like, to get this shot would have been like nigh impossible if you had not planned how you were going to get this shot. Yeah, exactly. Mm hmm. But it was also interesting, too, and it was one of the points of controversy uh, that gets brought up with this movie is that they actually caught a drug deal on camera and put it in the movie. But also, too, with the way that the it was edited in, it was just like it hits and you immediately understand like, oh, this is how we've gotten to this point in Arthur's life was, you know, just looking at some of the uh, things around him. It's especially for that point, like that felt so like the people were like wait what what are we what is happening here like i feel like we need to deal with this and like we need to we can't shy away from the fact that like this thing is just happening like in front of these kids and like nobody's really like questioning it and everybody seems to know like what's going on like so i i really liked the way that was presented in the movie because it is probably and was and maybe still is in some places like that for a lot of people it's just like yeah like this thing just happens and we play basketball around it and we know what people are doing when they come hang around here and chat us up but then 10 minutes later disappear into a corner um and i just think the way that they edited that and shot and added it together but didn't add any like commentary over it it was just like perfect yeah it it honestly felt really true to some of my own experiences in um just knowing that you know those basketball courts are centers of community and discussion and 
all sorts of joy and tragedy and all the things that happen um, in a neighborhood. And so there's not really a lot of other stages that things take place on. There's basketball courts, abandoned houses, parks and things. And so this kind of stuff happens. And I've, I've, there, there's a couple points in the movie where, um, you know, when hearing about his family's money problems and we see some of the footage of Arthur in like nice Jordans or in like good clothes and wondering like, how does he have money to do these things? And it's like, oh yes, the drug dealers give us money hoping that like, you know, we'll remember them favorably when I, when they, when we get big or that they just want us to, to make it. They want us to make it. And that was one of the, one of the, I, I think a, a thing that I'd never see in some of the inorganic stories told about growing up in the hood, or if you're someone like me who grew up hood adjacent, as I, as I call it with my sister, whereas, you know, we didn't consider our block the hood, but we were only like a few blocks away from, from, from definitive hoodness. And, and I, I think that there's definitely, because of the runtime and how long we follow uh, these families, we're following these families for what, five, six years, at least, I think, in the overall course of the film. And the runtime gives a lot of a lot of space for developing the depth of what's going on. The neighborhood itself is a character, especially in Arthur's case. And I, I think seeing those things from his father, when juxtaposed with some of, some of the stuff earlier, when he's talking about his own dreams, and, and later on in the film, when he tries to get his life back together, is just really touching. Like, it's really... It's it's really amazing to have that kind of art captured in a longitudinal manner. It's a really fascinating thing. Yeah, yeah, for sure. One of the things I do think was most impressive about the movie's editing was that a lot of those moments had the chance to breathe, but we weren't like beat overhead with like a moment or with our background and things like that. It's like, no, we were just kind of a fly on the wall just here just to kind of observe and get that story. And so, you know, we've dabbled in it a little bit. And so I want to kind of transition over to some of the discussion around uh, the backgrounds of both of these, both of these guys here. And so uh, one of the first things that we do see in the movie is the, the school. We're going to get into a little bit of spoilers here. Um, just because of the nature of documentaries is like, it's very hard to actually, digest them in discussions like this without giving spoilers and so i just want to make note of that early on here plus can you spoil reality does it count no personally but if you are worried about spoilers like this is your time to pause this watch this movie it's three hours long and then come back and pick right back up it'll only be like another 45 minutes that we talk probably so like you're good yeah, I just I just wanted to put the disclaimer out there because we're about to get in depth because well, one of the first themes that's really that really comes to the forefront in the movie is the idea that like of the class disparity and a lot of the racial undertones of that class disparity, especially at that time. Uh, so my first question, or first question is about the recruiter that came to the neighborhood uh, just to like find different kids to go play for the high school St. Joseph's. And so I was just curious to see if any of you have seen something like that before. 
you know, in your experience growing up or just around some of the kids that you may have interacted with over the years? Uh, yeah, we uh, we had stuff like that um, in Nashville where I grew up. I didn't know any recruiters in this kind of capacity, like in a sports kind of capacity. But I knew a lot of recruiters and interacted with some who were recruiting people based on like academic scholarship. So um, a little bit of my background is I went to a magnet school, which in Tennessee is basically a public school that has more specialized uh, academic opportunities than like a traditional school. And there's there's special ways you have to get in. And uh, I remember as a kid, because I had good grades, having someone come and recruit me from the magnet program or whatever and tell me all about it. And thankfully, this was not a program that you had to pay for, which I think is some, one of the big differences in the situation of what happens in this movie. But uh, I've definitely seen that kind of behavior before. And I when when the character ex came up in the movie, I immediately was like a little bit suspicious and then got a lot more frustrated once I once we found out more about the like financial situation of the school. Um, I definitely had some of those experiences as as like a, a young teenager, not even a preteen at like 11 and 12 um, as a very tall kid regularly would see those kind of recruiter folks at the local parks showing up to baseball games showing up to to like pick up football games on the street asking kids which neighborhood they stay in trying to figure out if they're going to go to a neighborhood school uh, in baseball I, I i was was probably my best sport when i was in middle school and i ended up playing on a lot of teams just in my like neighborhood little league and saw scouts from all sorts of private schools coming into the city to figure out which kid to try to whisk away to a school like St. Joseph, where both of our um, our documentary subjects are recruited to by this recruiter. And the neighborhood I grew up in, I believe, is the same one that uh, Chris Weber grew up in. Who ended up becoming um, I played baseball with Prince Fielder, who did end up, you know, because his father was a major league baseball player and a big star obviously had a lot of eyes on him but at the same time you know you had a lot of people trying to figure out okay everyone else who's at this level you know who wants to try to recruit you to go to detroit country day or go to divine child or you know, there's a there's a whole bunch of these schools a lot of them catholic that were recruiting pretty heavily in athletics for like from neighborhoods like mine and at the time it struck me as a thing that was like hey this could be your ticket because some of these, you know, some of these places like Cranbrook and things like that, there's no way you'd be able to afford to go otherwise. But there was also very little guarantee of the full scholarship. And so I ended up doing what James did, which was like the, the traditional magnet, like public magnet kind of, you know, test to get in um, strategy. And, and there was, you know, just heavily recruited by coaches in my own school to play sports I didn't want to play. But uh, but the idea of like people who are getting paid under the table to try to steer recruits in one direction or another is like, unfortunately, very real. We actually get to run back into that recruiter late in the movie. And I thought that him talking about his misgivings about those decisions based off of how it turned out was actually one of the more thoughtful things that an adult does in this movie. Yeah. Lauren, did, have you seen or experienced any of, any of these things growing up? So I have never been in any danger of being recruited for anything sports-like in my life. And 
haven't actually had the opportunity to see a lot of that happen. I did grow up in my early life in the hood and then eventually in second grade moved to be hood adjacent, as you said, Ryan. And shortly after that went from an all black, mostly black public school is fairly mixed, but still mostly black public school to a mostly white, but I mean like 98% white private school, but it was all similar to you and James, where it was more academically focused and not something sports-wise. So the recruiting I have experienced, I did feel very strongly for the kids when they were trying to adjust to being in the new school. And one of them, I can't remember which, said something like, you know, I'm just not used to being around a lot of white people. I'm like, I absolutely feel that, like, emotion of, like, suddenly you're you're not, you stand out, like, a lot in the experience that you're in and you have to pay for that experience and how hard it is for your family to actually scrounge together the money to pay for that experience that other people kind of take a lot for granted, but not so much with the recruiter piece. So watching that in here, both in the beginning and later when they get to the sort of college recruiters, it's like this whole thing just feels icky. I think at one point, one of the recruiters, I think it was the college recruiter refers to them as like, professional meat or something like that that he's trying to serve up to people yeah, I'm like, the, that's just a super yeah. awkward way to like oh my god like, yeah the why? meat market analogy yeah. Yeah. yeah it does not just horrifying in every possible way and just think they knew they were on camera so just think of what they talk about right? when they aren't on camera yeah and i thought it was interesting too towards uh speaking of some of the things later in the film uh arthur's high school basketball coach talking about the other high school in the city that typically wins the the city championship uh talking about how it's like it's it's wrong to re- want to recruit kids or to recruit kids at age 12 but it happens and they get do get this promise usually get this promise of moving being able to go to school way out you know away from the inner city and get this education and all of this that and the other thing and you know when they were talking about them going to St. Joseph's it was an hour and a half away I think in the movie they said it was... Three hours round trip. Yeah, three hours round trip. So yeah, 90 minute commute for both of them. Like getting up at 5 a.m. in the projects, walking through all the rest of that stuff there when you're broke and, you know, you, you were recruited to come play basketball. You get all the way out to the burbs. You walk through all the snow and everything else and all in this, like, white neighborhood. You have everybody telling you that, like, you just trying to be jovial is like being disrespectful because there's just like a lot of anti-blackness floating around every every bit of that that place and then you know what ends up happening with arthur is that he ends up basically getting uh, like he's not good enough fast enough and gets pushed out the school and then they have the nerve to to charge him for the time that he was there and not release his transcripts unless his parents spend like a king's ransom uh, to pay off. Yeah, held them hostage. Yeah, they 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 held them hostage. But even then, like late in the movie, you actually get when Arthur actually lives up to some of his potential in his late last like last year of high school. Coach going, "Oh boy, we could have used you." And I'm like, "You literally like cut this kid loose and like ruined his life because he didn't grow tall enough fast enough like the other kid." And like. Just the shamelessness on display was just really incredible. Now, that coach said the exact truth, though. We could have used you. This is the issue, right? He literally would have just used that kid up. This is what they did. Because there are also the issues with, like, the knee problems and how hard they're forcing these kids to work. 
yelling and screaming at them, um, but they're not intense enough and they don't know what intensity is. Like it's literally just using someone up and then discarding them when they're no longer worthwhile to you. That's part of what was so uncomfortable about this whole thing. And that's like the crux of the whole racial issue here is that they've pulled, they went looking for black kids specifically because they think they're good at, you know, basketball. They bust them over to these white neighborhoods and these white schools. They give them no support in joining these white environments where they're not comfortable. They haven't grown up in the space and they're clearly othered. They mostly just use them for booster and basketball. And then they discard them, basically. Like, it's horribly trafficked. And the entire thing is racialized because you've got all these white coaches and teachers and principals and uh, recruiters and things like that essentially treating a bunch of young, very impressionable black men who just want to get out of their current situation um, like meat. It's honestly just one of the most unfortunate experiences in a movie. So I would disagree with you with saying that they no, had no support. All their support was predicated on their performance in basketball. Like William, like you could see William uh, and Arthur to some extent getting extra time with teachers or some sort of tutoring and things like that if they were performing. Like Arthur maybe had like one teacher there's like one uh black teacher that like tried to help him out a little bit, but William like, you know his grades were you know shot up when he first got there, and like he caught you know they said that he caught up really fast, and they gave him all of that support his freshman and sophomore year, but once he got his knee injury, and all his grades dipped, it was just kind of like where where was all of this support? Right. Well, that's the thing is they only gave him support for basketball. If his grades shot up and then dipped as soon as he stopped playing, did he actually get those grades or were they giving him those grades is a question. Exactly. That's when he was getting test prep help, they were mostly just helping him learn how to guess better, not how to learn better. And when he got there, there was the issue of the fact that he's in one of very few black kids in the school. He's coming to a new place. There's no real emotional support yep. in how to actually get along and integrate into the community. That wasn't really the goal, right? They continue to be othered even at that school, um, which is just super awkward. And to build on the idea of like them using the kids until they were basically no good for them physically – it's crazy to me to think that they not only did that, but then once the kids were done with school, they were like, all right, well, we'll help shift you into a college that will basically do the same thing. And then if you become successful, we're going to continue to use you to get new recruits because that's effectively like what they did with the I, I don't remember the Isaiah name Thomas, the, Isaiah Thomas, from they, the using him as the example to lure both uh, Arthur and William to the school they effectively were like oh hey you graduated from our high school which really in the grand scheme of things means whatever um and you are a successful nba player so now we need you to come back and we're going to keep using this image of you so that we can get new people to win us more championships because that's the thing that they really cared about yeah and then on top but the sad part about it was and William kind of talked about this more towards the end of the movie uh, when they was uh, when they were talking about him going off to college. Basically, one of the things he did note was that you know there, it seemed like there were all of these sort of predators around him. He didn't say it exactly like that, but it was like that was just one predator or one group of predators around these kids at that age. I mean, we you know we talked about it briefly with some of the the drug dealers, uh, you know, giving Arthur and his friends money. That would be like another group of predators, but also too just within their own families trying to relive dreams through them. 
Yeah, I, I actually think that the the title Hoop Dreams is actually a kind of wonderful misdirection because you're coming into it thinking about it's about these these two young men and their dreams of making the NBA because that's how it's framed. But it's very clear that the pressure that wears down on these kids is the fact that everyone else's dreams are are being forced through them and that they don't have space for some of their own agency. That um you know, William's older brother, who was a great basketball player in his time and, you know, was all city and got into the school he, uh, William eventually matriculates to, to Marquette in Milwaukee, but, uh, but didn't have the grades to go and is back home as like, uh, and also ran. There's some like really heartbreaking moments of like him walking through and struggling through life and being extra hard on his little brother because he's invested his own dreams in in William's success. For Arthur's side, it was his father who was a great basketball player and then, you know, had a child and gave up on a lot of his dreams and um but was fully imbuing a lot of those things there. Something I don't know if y'all caught was that um Arthur was given the nickname Man, like like really early, but from his from his father, there was like a poster on the wall that was like, Happy birthday, you know, Arthur, aka Man. And it was very much the like it, it carried a subtext for me of you're really young, you're the man, you're, you're, you're like, you need to be able to be the man of the house and you are carrying a bunch of this family's dreams as the eldest, eldest boy. That could be me reading my own personal issues into it. Shout out to my therapist or, uh, for uh, having way too much pressure on me as a young person to fulfill the dreams of my parents. But th- that resonated a lot. And like, just, you know, hearing them call him that while this like real thin, you know, five foot something, kid is schlepping himself across the county to go to this all-white school where people are angry at him for not being tall enough fast enough it's just really heartbreaking in a number of ways you know like the the crappy shitty racist coach his dream of like having another isaiah thomas drives him to just be um, an irredeemable asshole to his players no matter how good they do and to try to take credit for any of their successes and blame them for all their failures. I really wanted to drink every time he said, you people. Yes. Because uh-huh. it was so frequent. I called it out, yeah. Yeah, we did too. I was like, uh, does he, I, he did not realize what was going on. Actually, you know, I want to say like, can we talk about the adults we thought were redeemed, were like, actually came across well in this movie? Because I think that, um, you know, a number of the parents actually, you know, had really difficult moments, but both of the boys' moms sacrificed so much for them to be able to see this way. And the the coach for Marshall, the inner city school that Arthur ends up attending after he's kicked out of St. Joseph, that the his black basketball coach there seemed to just kind of have a really realistic understanding of what the situation was and trying to do his best to help him, but didn't really overpromise, didn't really treat him overly harshly or overly or overly soft. It it felt like he was acting like an actual adult and out of the different school people involved in this movie, he's one of the only ones that I came away from feeling like this person probably should actually be around children. Yeah. Actually, it seemed like that for a lot of the Marshall staff, at at least they, it felt like they all understood their situation and were just trying to try their best. And, and so, yeah, like, but I do want to focus more on the moms here because both of them just seemed like, Especially William's mom, because we didn't get a, a it felt like we didn't get a lot of 
uh, her uh, her situation coming across uh, in the movie. But yeah, like both of the moms just seemed like they were both barely hanging on. Yeah, I thought that Arthur's mom, Sheila, she was really interesting because like you, you get to see her going through the struggle where she's got a husband who starts off as an addict, goes to jail, gets clean. The son is going through all this bath, wants to be a basketball star. She was training to be a nurse through part of the film and yeah. eventually gets like through that training and graduates. And you see this graduation ceremony that is only really attended by like her family. And it's sort of juxtaposed with one of the basketball games. But for me, like her story uh, is emblematic of like the sort of duality of what it, the stories you typically hear when it comes to what it means to be a successful minority in America, particularly a black person. Because often there's usually presented as you can be successful in one of two ways. You can become a star, NBA star, a football star, a rap star, maybe a movie star, or you go to school, right? There's no in between. It's either go to school and you get like a reasonable job or you manage to make millions of dollars for this one thing. And so she's got a son that's trying to do the first one, right? He's trying to become Isaiah Thomas. And in the second one, she's just basically plodding along, going to school, getting a degree so that she can have like a regular respected job. And there's no accolades for that, right? There's no recruiters offering her special fancy things. There's no like particular perks for it. She's just doing the work. She seems pretty like resilient and amazing. But it's only ever those two stories. And one of them got a lot of attention in London. And I will say that, you know, like when I was talking about how uh, so many people were putting pressure on these kids and living their their dreams through them. Sheila's story was actually a wonderful juxtaposition of she had her own dream. She pursued her own dream. She didn't use their situation as a scapegoat and like put all the chips on Arthur. It was very much the I like she she was doing her her best to keep that family together. You know, through welfare, through taking care of a a, a new granddaughter of being in the house alone with the alone in the dark because the lights got turned off and she correctly knows that the system clearly does not care about them. And like, it took Arthur off of public assistance the day he turned 18, like he wasn't still in school and still didn't need to eat. And so I thought that that kind of resilience, I mean, it's a story we often see about black women, but it's also a thing that is very real about um, that experience. And I'm at least glad that in the documentary, they showed that kind of long-term perseverance towards a goal that wasn't this this predatory, you know, athletic space, but also just like how much harder that was for her to do than what the what the path they were promised was. I also don't know if if y'all caught that she originally lost her position as a nurse because of chronic back pain, mm-hmm. which to me was incredibly frustrating because like to hear that story and for the for those people you know to know that she is taking care of this family and to just be like we can't use you enough right now because you're having chronic back issues likely from working and we're just gonna have to let you go to find somebody else who will do it which i I don't know was very very infuriating to me yeah and she talks about being on welfare and and I think she's the one that talks about how she actually feeds the family for less than three hundred dollars a month and gets by and asks, "Do you ever think about how I do that?" And the reality is it's never actually addressed how she does that. 
it's not a thing the film actually explores. I think the film does a great job of highlighting her as a juxtaposition to the rest of the story. But like, that's, I think the untold story in a lot of these cases is that the things that the family and that the kids really need, like the moms are struggling basically and killing themselves to provide and no one else is providing it. Um, It's also worth noting that I think at that part of the story, they're paying off his St. Joseph's bill because that shady ass school, I will drag them to the end of time. The shady ass school charged $1,800 in 1991 money for his freshman year that they didn't even like give him full credit for. And you heard her talking about surviving on $300 a month. Well, they were paying $180 a month to St. Joseph to be able to get his transcript for, so he could have the, even just a chance of graduating close to on time. And that kind of sacrifice is like laudable and unreal and like in and amazing, but also just like how ghastly is the system that it allows something like this to happen. Also, uh, if we're in St. Joseph drag time, uh, the fact that they let him start sophomore year and rack up more debt. And then we're like, you're not paying it fast enough. We're going to kick you out in the middle of the school year is like so messed up. Like there are so many things that they could have done to make that situation not be that terrible. And they were just like, we do not care about this at all. But it's funny, too, just thinking about uh, that whole situation and then thinking about back to William's situation. You know, Arthur started on the freshman team and, you know, was still developing. And then William was ready to play varsity right away. And when the tuition hike came, you know, all of a sudden they found like William magically just had a donor appear and cover his tuition, but Arthur didn't. Mm-hmm. And so that gets back to some of the some of the things that we were talking about earlier in our discussion when it comes down to just, perf- you know, perform. I want to just take a minute to talk about the donor. I had some feelings about the donor, and I'd be curious to hear what you guys have to say. But uh, one, Encyclopedia Britannica, what an industry to be in in the 80s. <laughs> to, to think about where that <laughs> this is This is now. a solid job. This will never go away. <laughs> In all fairness, we all had those encyclopedias, didn't we? So at yeah. the time, it was basically Bitcoin, so far as I can tell. But also, uh, I w- my, my initial thought was, okay, like, they're donors, whatever. I don't love this situation. And then when she was like, oh, hey, let me introduce this kid that I sponsored to my friends and, like, show off that I did the good thing by giving money to the school, I was like, okay, cool. I don't need to see you anymore. And I, I don't. I got is the more and more they went into sort of her relationship with the family, and like how intertwined that started to become as the movie went on. I was like, mm, I am not cool with this scenario. No, and I think it's worth noting while we're dragging um, St. Joseph's, they also sued the filmmakers. Oh, really? Film. I didn't yeah, know that because they were because yeah, they didn't come off well, obviously, in the film, and so they sued the production. They forgot the things that they actually said. They forgot yeah. the things they said on camera. They did manage to still pimp their connection to Isaiah Thomas in their lawsuit, but they did sue the filmmaker for it. Yeah, that school is trash, just trash. And like, this is a slight dig- digression, but uh, I mentioned it earlier. But um, uh, an important bit of context for 
for this whole predatory athletics scheme. This was happening during a time in which uh, Catholic dioceses across the country were seeing shrinking enrollment. And a number of Catholic schools in place in cities like Detroit and Chicago, where they started up in times before white flight. So some, you know, doesn't apply to St. Joseph, but applies to like schools like Benedictine in uh, Detroit or U of D Jesuit or a bunch of other schools that, you know, suddenly found themselves oases, oases of whiteness in black cities was that the, you know, the heavy recruitment for athletics served as sort of a stimulus for propping up some of these schools and the athletic programs, you know, work the same way. I, I think there's also worth uh, pointing out one of the one of the really interesting things about about how Arthur and William were kind of used and spit out of the system was that yes there was always a donor available the the, the school's insurance paid for both of William's surgeries and I I was like they literally had insurance out on these kids that's interesting I wish we could explore that a little bit more because I was like, well, how is he affording this expensive rehab? How is he being able to do these things there? But the second they lose early in the playoffs, I didn't see a single testing center for like ACT prep or anything else. And shout outs to William for in his final conversation with uh, Coach Ping and, um, at St. Joseph for just like sliding the oyster knife in and and the coach goes like, oh, yeah, you know, well, you know, it was really tough and we didn't, you know, things didn't go the way we were hoping to go. But, you know, like, I hope that you, you know, will remember us fondly, basically. He's just like, no, he was like, well, you know, well, you're going to go off and study, do good things. And, you know, you'll come back and tell tell people about how great the school was. He was like, I'm going to study communication. So, like, I'll figure out the best way to refuse you when you call and ask me for money, which, like, good for him, because that kid did not stand up for himself in various points of this movie and i felt that venom uh from what was just like a really really nice kid I mean, it's, it's also worth just pointing out like both of these kids were really good kids and just trying to do like trying to follow their dreams they were not out trying to like hurt people or trying to take advantage of things they were literally just trying to follow their dreams and do right by their families and i think that's what a lot of the anger there was watching their good faith, uh, you know, matched by bad. Yeah, but like you bring up that scene with William, and I immediately go back to what the coach said immediately as soon as he was out the right. door. All right, one out the door, another one comes in. Yep. And that just kind of gets back to just how used the, all the kids were. And the, the the thing that's crazy to me as a sports fan, just kind of taking it out of the movie a little bit, as a sports fan, in both recruiting and, you know, I'm thinking about, like, travel, travel sports, AAU now, like, this was kind of like the precursor to all of that stuff, and you don't really see any of those things change. Like, all the Predators are still there, they're just, they just move, like, places, they're hiding in different areas. Yep, not... But they're still there. Now some of the pushers, instead of recruiter to a high school, it's a recruiter to an AAU team. And that AAU team is sponsored by a shoe company. Yep. And the shoe company is flooding money under the table and equipment and gear and travel opportunities and opportunities to make it to, you know, the All-American games and the big All-Star games. So it's it's essentially been privatized there. And then you have 
colleges sliding money under the table um, to students because we don't allow them to make their own money. But even it's rumored to go beyond that, too, where the where you have colleges sliding money to people around the kids just to be able to talk to them. Yep. Like it's gotten like if you if you kind of follow some of the rumors that you hear about different uh recruits or you know different um recruiting situations like it's gotten a lot worse and looking at a movie like this that came out in 94 about two kids growing up in the late 80s like you could kind of see how it was headed there with the way that the coaches at the all-american camp were talking about the kids some of which we saw were current like were former NBA players. Mm-hmm. You know, we got to see Jawan Howard, Chris Weber, and Jalen Rose all kind of pop up at uh different places during that whole uh piece of the movie. And I want to stop myself before I kind of hop back up or hop up on the soapbox there. I mean, yeah. I mean, like I'm I've I've been in the process of building my soapbox this whole episode, so um, you're welcome to join me. Uh, so a thing that I uh, I don't I don't think that it's it's not something that comes up often in. Uh, my day job stuff, but uh, when I got my master's degree, it was actually in um, student access and success um, in higher education. And one of the things that, you know, like I, I had opinions about like how predatory the system was, but th- one of the things that I really loved learning, shout outs to Dr. Phil Bowman in U of M School of Education, was really diving into the the politics of what counts as merit and we talk about, you know, being academically worthy of X, Y, and Z, but the amount of effort that they put into their basketball skills is meritorious. It's something that deserves to be rewarded financially. It's kind of ridiculous to say that the, their basketball games as high schoolers were broadcast on national television, that they filled up arenas more full than I've seen for some bad Michigan basketball teams to come see, like, uh. A, a, a high school playoff semifinal, you know, had people in the upper in the upper bowl, you know, all the way up to the nosebleeds. The idea that those those kids will go go home to families struggling with uh, keeping the lights on or food on the table, when clearly there are people making money from this, is ridiculous. I was gonna say, I mean, and that that's a piece that hasn't changed. I mean, I still remember in was it the early two thousands, being a middle schooler turn on this TV and seeing St. Vincent, St. Mary's games and LeBron James out there to a packed stadium and everyone's going ballistic. And then, you know, a few years later, closer to when I was graduating high school, same sort of thing with Derrick Rose. And then a few years later, looking at other high just ESPN always seemed to have like one or two big high school basketball showcase games that weren't just these high school All-American games like the McDonald's All-American game or eventually the Jordan Brand All American Game, yeah, and uh, and, and and the way that Dr. Bowman really helped me solidify my arguments for this was, if you were a teen phenom musician, and you came out with the hit song, and you were and you had a ton of people who were willing to pay you for it, you had nothing stopping you from being able to actually make money. You know, if you were Lil Wayne, other than a predatory contract, and that's probably a different discussion, but uh, technically, there's nothing legally stopping you from making money. But for these athletes, they are legally prevented from being able to take advantage of their popularity, their cultural cachet, the importance they have to their their schools, either in high school or college. And at the end of the movie, we've got uh, Arthur, you know, who ends up going to a junior college because he doesn't 
have the the test scores to get into a four-year school you know he ends up going to mineral area junior college where he is one of seven black students i think six of them were basketball players and they were all living in what i can only describe as a plywood shack with the payphone like stuck in the wall and like like out in the middle of nowhere with no one else clearly brought here just to do labor to make sure that the school had a basketball program. And it's, I, I, it rarely gets more clarified than that of like, you're out here in Southern Missouri as one of the only black kids at a school, your job is to play basketball. And the deal you get out of it is we will make you eligible to go to another school so you can keep pursuing this dream. But we are going to leech off of you the same way that everyone else has. And I mean, you don't even have to go to that part of the movie. If you look, I encourage people to look up uh, some of the some of the outcomes and things that kind of happened uh, since the movie. And one of the stories that, that I found when I was looking up some stuff around the movie was that, you know, just for William and Arthur to get compensated for the movie, they had to finish their college basketball careers. Because the NCAA, they because the NCAA told them that if they were to get revenue from the movie, like they would be ineligible. Yeah, I, I saw that too, and that was the thing that was that sort of made my blood boil. Is is for the NCAA to say you did this thing before college. It has nothing to do with your college basketball experience. You're literally making money off of a thing that. You experienced as a youth, and we're not going to let you do that because if you get paid, you're no longer an amateur basketball player. It's like such a crazy concept and a thing that like you shouldn't it it doesn't seem like an external entity should be able to make that call. And so it's insane that that is a thing that ended up happening. I should say that. The words spoken by Ryan, Ryan today are not reflective of his employer and his sole opinions of the individual. And fuck the NCAA. It is a cartel. Um, it is an illegal way to control the labor of, of a lot of young black people and exploit them for monetary gain to the tune of billions of dollars. I think everyone knows how corrupt the NCAA is. At some level, what I think that this movie does a good job of showing how that kind of trickles down, because that kind of not not being able to compensate players early, not being able to give them whatever resources they actually need and limiting what they're able to accept or achieve or where they're able to go means that all these other predators get to also nibble at them along the way. And I think that the you know, the the thing that I came away from the movie after the long three hour jaunt was uh was thinking about like in a future where athletes are, of all ages are able to make money from their names and likeness if uh was it like twenty two hundred thousand dollars was was what they ended up getting for um participating in the movie yeah how much would that have meant to their families when they were 14 that would have been life-changing like like you know like even you know the, if if that money could have been fronted or you know if their families were able to be taken care of like the drama is the human drama is lessened probably from some of those terrible things, but it still would have been an interesting story. But people suffered like real life suffered unnecessarily because of these things. And it happens every day. Yeah. 100%. The other thing that kind of bothers me about this, and I agree with everything you guys have said, but like 
The other piece that keeps nagging at me about one of the things the NCAA and other groups say, like this happens in this film too, is that the kids are being compensated with an education. And my question is, but are they? Because I don't know that they are. But also for kids of this age, like there is no question actually presented in this movie as to whether or not the main focus of these kids' days should be basketball. Like you're in school, the school should be focused on your education first and foremost, and the basketball should follow. Is that not the goal of school? Because as far as I know, schools aren't necessarily supposed to be basketball camps. They're supposed to be centers for educating young people so they can go off into the world and do whatever. And that what that whatever might include basketball, but that doesn't mean they should be shortchanged. And in the movie, both the high schools and the colleges those kids are going to don't care at all about whether they've actually learned anything. And they talk about, you know, him failing um, to get the SAT or the ACT scores he wants, you know, over and over and over again. But at no point does he actually spend any real time in the movie focused on him learning anything either. And so part of the issue is that these kids aren't being compensated for the actual value they're bringing to their institutions through school. But part of the other issue is like these kids have to go off and be people at some point. And, like, they actually deserved to know more than they left school knowing and being able to do. And no one cared about that at all. And so, like, what happens when you're just considered a body and not a brain and no one ever actually bothers to do the things that schools, especially K-12 schools, should be doing first and foremost, which is making sure that a young person actually knows enough to go out into the world and not be a complete idiot and a huge fuck up as an adult. Um, so every adult in this movie failed those kids, even just on the basic level of making sure they had a basic education to go along with their basketball playing. I think the only character in the movie character, the only person in the movie who said anything like that was the basketball coach at Marshall. Yep. At one point said something along the lines of like, it doesn't matter what you do in here if your like head isn't screwed on right. And like, if you don't pay attention to what's going on in the school, it's still not really reinforced. Like it's a one-off comment in one of his like one-on-one interviews and no behavior anywhere in the school is, is changed or reinforces that idea. But yeah, it's absolutely insane uh, that they were just like, yeah, we don't really care what grades you get as long as you meet the arbitrary limits that we've put in place. Like the, the fact that for William, he needed an 18 on the ACT and got to a 17 and a half. And they were like, we'll just round that up. Like, it's cool. Don't worry about it. He'd actually taken it like four times. Yeah. So they basically yep. like took the average and rolled it up. Yeah. That's what five they did. times. Yeah. And th- don't get me started on the ACT racket and being able to just basically brute force your way through that test, which is a thing you can absolutely do. But it's just crazy to me that that's the way they were talking about it. And they're like, look, all you need to do is do this and just beat your head against it until you hit this threshold so that we can give you a scholarship to go to this college so you can play basketball for us. And what I think is especially telling, you know, as we're getting closer to the end of the conversation is the outcomes. And if you look at Williams outcomes specifically, so he went to the private school, very expensive, supposedly very elite he got a full ride to Marquette, supposedly very elite. And then what he ends up doing with his life and what ends up, I'm assuming, fulfilling him as an adult, he went back to a different college to do. So all of that work and all of that prep and all of the promise that they gave to him to get him to burn his body for basketball 
didn't even help him in his adult life. He had to go an entirely different route to become and do something that ended up fulfilling him as an adult, which I just think is insane. Yeah, and towards the end of the movie, you could kind of, you could, not even kind of, you could straight up see the toll that the whole ordeal took on him. You know, he was talking about, uh, you know, we had the situation with his coach at the end of the movie. We had the whole situation with him sitting in his college dorm room, kind of talking to the camera, explaining kind of some of the stuff that was going through his head as he was entering college. And then we kind of see his, as Ryan talked about earlier, we kind of see uh, his story kind of come up through the text uh, at the end of the movie. And we see that like, oh, he basically, you know, he essentially took a year off of basketball. He really struggled in college. Yeah. It might have been two. He only ended up scoring like three point something points per game and like barely played. And it's hard not to not to see how much of his like passion for basketball snuffed out. I think it's also worth noting just like just how much these kids survived in order to even get to that point where these people are taking advantage of them that like they're growing up in the projects. William's father literally disappeared for years and only showed back up when he started to come in, started to be visible in the paper for his basketball play because he was hoping to catch a free ride. You know, Arthur's father, you know, had had gotten addicted to drugs, beat his mother, went to jail, came back, got separated, you know, all sorts of different issues and things. And, and you know, like his, his best friend who had moved in with him at some point had gone to jail right before he even goes out to college. He gets robbed at gunpoint. I even go off to college right before he even graduated right. the week of his graduation. And, you know, like if you if you look about look at the sheer amount of adversity that those kids managed to get through for like it, it just feels tremendously unfair, you know, like the to to have those kinds of expectations to still go through all that, to still do this well, and to have, you know, assholes like the that coach go like well, you know, like it didn't work out the way I wanted it to work out. I couldn't use you the way I wanted to use you. You didn't give me my next Isaiah Thomas. So next next man up is just, uh, yeah, adults suck. Um, <laughs> yeah, adults suck. But I know we talked a little bit about William here, but William, just to kind of give some of the aftermath, or just a quick summary of some stuff that happened after the movie. Uh, William ended up becoming a pastor after uh, the events of the movie. Um, that's kind of where life uh, took him. Uh, Arthur, after uh, going to junior college, he went to Arkansas State and uh, he eventually launched a Hoop Dreams clothing line and the Arthur A.G. Jr. Foundation, I believe it's called, uh, which is organization focused on uh, helping youth, uh, inner city youth uh, get to higher education. And he also works as a motivational speaker. And so those are the outcomes of our two main sort of subjects in this documentary. And there's also a, quite a bit of follow-up content. There's a oral history out there. There's been plenty of things written about the movie. But also, too, they, the filmmakers, who I don't think we mentioned by name, but Steve James, who eventually made No Crossover, the ESPN 30 for 30 about Allen Iverson, uh, he directed and... Uh, edited the movie along with Frederick Marx and Peter Gilbert. That whole crew, they also did a follow-up to Hoop Dreams called Life After Hoop Dreams, which is a video 
that I believe is a part of the Criterion Collection. And then also, too, another set of uh, filmmakers made a sort of follow-up series called uh, Hoop Reality. And that actually follows uh, NBA player Patrick Beverly, who's from the same or uh, same area of Chicago as uh, Arthur Agee, I believe. I might be wrong on that one. Yeah, Arthur's in that movie, too. I think he's a mentor for that player. Yeah, Patrick Beverly eventually, I believe, goes to Marshall, and Arthur is one of the mentors that kind of helps him uh, navigate the waters, the, those pretty predatory waters. And so, you know, so if you do want to kind of follow up on uh, William Gates and Arthur Agee, there is quite a bit of content around that that you can uh, search through. That said, I do want to go ahead and move on to our final thoughts when it comes to this movie. But before that, there's one other thing that I wanted to mention, too, about William and as far as like his outcomes, because we didn't make it. I don't know if we didn't make it clear or not, but neither player ended up playing in the NBA in, in any capacity. However, William almost did. I read last night as I was prepping for this that he almost played for the Washington Wizards when Michael Jordan was making his comeback. Yep. Um, apparently he had an opportunity to practice with the team and with Jordan for a while and likely related to the events of what happened in this movie, William's body was not really in the proper shape and he ended up injuring himself again. And then he retired from basketball entirely. But like, I thought that was particularly interesting sort of addition to the story is that even still as an adult they're still putting their bodies on the line to try to make this dream work and it just still couldn't happen that's a good point yeah i didn't think to mention though the the point about him getting the workout with jordan uh and the washington wizards but i do want to get everyone's final thoughts here and so i'm actually going to go back to you james what did you think of the movie final thoughts here i still think it's it's a movie that everybody should watch i think it's especially important to watch it if you've seen it before to watch it again because it will remind you of a lot of things that are sort of happening today it, it's an infuriating movie but not in the bad way like it 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 spawns a righteous fury in me that sometimes i want to feel um, because it gets me motivated to try to make changes in the world but but boy this was one of my favorite movies we've watched. Still don't know if it tops Spider-Verse, but uh, it's. I'm definitely glad that you recommended it, Andre, even if it is like outrageously long. How about Lauren? So we've, we've spent a lot of time talking about the like racial and socioeconomic uh, implications and concerns around this movie. I'm just going to say that I appreciate the movie partially because of the time capsule component of having watched this almost 30 years later. And particularly, I want to shout out all of the amazing black hairstyles from the late 80s and early 90s, and the fashion choices. I had forgotten jerry curls were a thing. I know Essence thought they were going to come back last year. I don't think they did. But also that and the, like, in living color hairstyle that every black woman had at a certain point in the early 90s, where your hair was relaxed and it was, like, cut just at your ears and slightly curled under, I had that too. And I'd forgotten about all of those things until I watched this movie. And then I was like... This was a magical time for black people. And I appreciate the movie reminding me of that. It was just all the things we've said before. All right, Ryan, 
I'm going to pass it over to you now. Sure. Um, I also want to piggyback off of what Lauren said and that say that some of the outfits in this movie are incredible and could be copy-pasted into 2021 seamlessly, and you would look dope. It's like watching a salt and pepper video all the time. A thing that stands out to me for this is that, like, I, I mean, I, I think a lot of folks can probably guess from, if you've been with us for a number of episodes, that... My tastes are kind of all over the place in things. I like a whole lot of different kinds of media. But one of the reasons that uh, that I love sports is that sports themselves bring about a sort of natural human drama. And when looking at them in the long in the long term and like years over years, the storylines that develop can be really amazing and organic in a way that is really hard to match up with a lot of other things. And just the nature of the sport and the nature of the stories and the people who compete in this way naturally you just bring a lot of drama naturally to the situation and this was a really wonderful example of how these filmmakers couldn't have known that the story of following these two kids recruited to this private school would diverge in such such an incredibly mirrored fashion would diverge in a way that displayed all these different aspects of this broken system and the ways that these families were trying to deal with it. But it's one of the things that I actually love most about sports. So if you're someone who thinks of themselves as like a, you know, if you're a big movie person, but not really a big sports person, uh, my hope is that watching this documentary, which you can definitely do in pieces, um, it's totally fine to watch this in multiple sittings. But watching this documentary, I think, gives you a hint of the kinds of the kinds of drama in the athletics itself. The storylines about, you know, well, well, will William ever get to go downstate for the for the the basketball championship? Are they going to be able to get get the scholarship to make it into school? You see the reasons why people get invested in these storylines and what drives all of the all the fervor and all of the activity around these spaces. It's because these are incredible stories. You know, at the core of it, no, no matter what the sport is, there's these kinds of stories to be found. And I'm thankful for the documentary for showing us aspects of those stories that we don't normally get to see told. And for that, I think it is something that deserves to be where it is, which is in the Library of Congress in like the National Film Registry. This movie, I believe, is available on HBO Max. And I think HBO Max has the Criterion Collection version. Is that right, Andre? Um, I'm not 100% sure. Um, if HBO Max has it, I watched it. I purchased it and watched it on uh, Prime Video, so I'm not 100 percent sure on that one. Yeah, but there there is a Criterion Collection cut that does include some additional commentary and things, and is remastered. It's also a great opportunity to watch film technology develop because in the years from the start of the movie to the later years that they're covering, you can literally see the quality improve over time. It's amazing. But yeah, like I, I'm grateful for the opportunity to rewatch this movie as an adult with, um, with rage at different actors in this uh, in this human drama than I did as a teenager. I want to pass it to Lauren real quick. Can I just go back for a second to something Andre just said? Did you just say you watched it on video? Please tell me you have a VHS. No, I don't have a VHS. I watched it on Prime Video. Yeah. Okay. Not nearly yeah. as good. All right. Wah, yeah. wah, I mean, wah. to be fair, like I think that like so my cousin Henry, I talked about at the beginning of the pod. Um, you know, who, like, the Who Dreams person in my life uh, definitely had this on tape. Well, I figured Andre would. <laughs> right. So, so we, in order for us to watch this on tape, we had to, we had to, uh, to tape it off of PBS, I believe, which was cut into multiple pieces. And we needed, like, a super long play tape 
you know, that could handle like six hours of video and reduce the quality to like 144p essentially. Mm-hmm. EP mode. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Very familiar with it. I do not miss that technology. That technology made me a lot of money. I do. It was fun. I used to be able to fit like a, a good chunk of TV episodes onto, I, I would consolidate them from like multiple masters onto one cheap extended play tape and then sell it for the cost of like, you know, of like two thirds is a deal for everybody involved. It made me a lot of cash as a kid. Uh, but anyway, just to kind of close out some of, you know, with some of my thoughts on the movie, I feel like this is a forgotten documentary in a lot of ways. One with my own experience in film school, taking a documentary class and somehow this wasn't a part of the curriculum. And then also to just talking to various film people um, that are into documentaries and just finding out that they haven't seen it. Uh, just amazes me. But I do think it's important uh, for filmmakers to watch this movie, but also to anyone that follows uh, college sports, high school sports, uh, or the recruiting process. I think it's uh, still to this day, 30 years later almost, uh, it's super relevant with a lot of the things that happened to both Arthur and William. I I got to pull this one out again at some point just to rewatch it in the next few years because it is absolutely phenomenal and with that i do want to say this has been the black movie podcast you can watch uh hoop dreams on amazon if you that's the place that you like to watch movies you'll have to buy it or rent it uh as ryan said it is on hbo max and i just strongly encourage you all to just go out and just buy a dvd of this movie um, because it is just absolutely phenomenal. It is in 4.3. Just want to give you that uh, quick warning that it was shot for television back in the 90s. But it is very good and well worth the watch. If you like this podcast, be sure to engage with us. Rate us on uh, iTunes and tweet at us at BLK Movie Podcast on Twitter. Be sure to check out our website, Black Movie Podcast, for the latest updates, latest podcasts on whatever platform you like to listen to podcasts. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to the Black Movie Podcast. Our show is edited by Mike Knight. Our theme song is by Chris Negro Justice Brown. And our logo was created by Savannah Alexander. Even if you never heard of me, just know I'm murdering. Leave all these kids with third degrees. Evidence is empirically laid out in front for you to see. I found the trinity, good people, weed, and memories, these are the only things I need.